Hey, good morning, Regeneration fam. I'm so glad to be with you. Today is Sunday, January the 10th, 2021. I'm just so glad to be with you this morning as we turn our hearts and minds toward Jesus together. I know that this week uh, presented, I've been told that I use the word unprecedented too much, new and unusual and unexpected challenges uh, for us uh, here in our country, and I know that that has weighed heavily on us uh, as we're recording, the events that took place in our nation's capital just took place less than 24 hours ago. And so just as we turn our hearts and minds toward the Lord together, I thought I would begin with reading Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when the earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam, let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of our God and the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. Yahweh of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Come, see Yahweh's glorious works. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. Yahweh of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Let's sing together. Jesus, we are reminded that you are our king. That presidents come and go, that nations rise and fall, but that we are citizens of heaven, that we are inheriting an unshakable kingdom. And so, Father, train our eyes on you tonight or today. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Help us to have our eyes fixed on you. Help us to be people who step out boldly so that everyone would know this name, this Jesus. As we turn to scripture this morning, Holy Spirit, we need you to breathe life into it and to us so that we can hear from you and do what you say. So we pray that you would come now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be with you. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 8 while I go off camera and get my table. We are in Acts chapter 8. I've loved studying Acts. I've loved teaching it, so I'm excited to be in this little segment of the book of Acts, Acts 8 through 10. In Acts 8, the early church steps into the unknown, into a mission field that is familiar and foreign at the same time. And in a similar way, as we're stepping into 2021, we are stepping into a new mission field. We, we haven't left our neighborhoods, our, our so, social networks may not have changed, but our mission field has shifted. 
the early church, in the midst of this surprise expansion, are, they're, they're helpful companions to us as we step into the newness of 2021. And in the first half of Acts chapter 8, we met Philip. Philip is a Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured, Jewish Christian. Uh, he's sent on mission to the Samaritans. The Samaritans are ethnically and theologically similar to, Jewish, to the Jewish believers, but they are a splinter group. And traditional ethnic Jews have a significant disdain and dislike for them. And to everyone's surprise, the Samaritans and certainly the Jewish Christians, the Samaritans are now part of Jesus' covenant family. And as we turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, Acts 8, 26 through 40, we find someone else who is welcomed into the covenant family of Jesus, an Ethiopian eunuch. Let's look at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, verse 28, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the prophet Isaiah. Philip had a remarkably fruitful ministry among the Samaritans. He had a front row seat to the revival that took place there. And now Philip is directed to move on. The Lord instructs Philip to take a deserted road south from Jerusalem to Gaza. And he does exactly as he's told. And along the way, Philip runs into a man of no little status. He's the treasurer of Ethiopia. He's under the authority of the Kandake, the queen of Ethiopia. And he is a eunuch. And I know it has been a long time since you ran into an Ethiopian eunuch on the southern road from Jerusalem to Gaza, so I thought it would be good to stop and talk about what we're dealing with here. Because in just a few little sentences, Luke has told us a great deal about this individual. In Luke's time, at the time of Jesus, Ethiopia was much larger than the nation-state you and I find on our globes today. In fact, Ethiopia broadly referred to any part of Africa south of Egypt. From the middle 500s BC to about 350 AD, the kingdom of Ethiopia was one of the most significant cultural and economic forces in the classical world. It connected inland Africa with the Roman Empire via Egypt. And so the man Philip meets is a citizen of that kingdom, but he's not just any citizen. He is the treasurer to the queen of Ethiopia. Some translations, you might even be reading yours, and it says the queen's name is Candace. That is not her proper name. It's actually her title, the Kandake. Uh, this is an Ethiopian dynastic line of rulers that was one of the most influential in Africa's history. And this Ethiopian is the treasurer to this queen. He's a political insider, but he's not just running a pack. He's not just a lobbyist. He is at the queen's right hand. He is managing all of her funds. He is powerful and influential in his own right. And the reason Luke is introducing us to this guy and going such, to such great lengths to show us his importance is because if you remember the very first verse of Acts 1, we find that Luke is addressing his, this second volume to a dude named Theophilus. 
who is an upper middle class Roman citizen. So he's trying to show Theophilus that there are other upper crust kind of people becoming followers of Jesus, not just the poor like we meet in the earlier parts of the book of Acts. Now, there's one other key detail about this Ethiopian. He is a eunuch. He was castrated shortly after birth or in his childhood, and it wasn't an uncommon practice in ancient and classical cultures to castrate boys who could one day hold sensitive positions in government, positions like a treasurer, positions like overseeing a king's harem, a.k.a. his many, many wives that he got to sleep with. And the thinking was that by removing the boy's sex organs, he could grow up and a temptation to sexual, like sex couldn't be used as a temptation to get him to change his loyalties from the royal family that he might have been serving. So here we have an Ethiopian. By the way, Ethiopians are considered in the Greco-Roman culture to be living at the edge of the world, at the very edge of the world. And remember, Jesus has said, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And right now, Acts 8 through 10 is all about Judea and Samaria, but it's like a little preview. It's like a little foretaste here because here's an Ethiopian eunuch from the very ends of the earth, right here in town, who is about to have a really significant conversion experience. Uh, He's an Ethiopian. He's of significant social status. He's a sexual outsider. And then Luke tells us in verse 27 that this eunuch this Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. This Ethiopian eunuch is what's called a God-fearer, a Gentile, that is a non-Jew, who is observing all of the laws of Moses, who is a Jew in everything but birth, uh, except one little thing. So this Ethiopian eunuch, a faithful God-seeking, God-fearing man. By the way, if he's from Ethiopia and he's traveled to Jerusalem to worship, that is a two-month journey one way. He's been on the road in a carriage, which don't really have a great reputation for having a smooth ride or good suspension. Uh, Two months to get to Jerusalem to worship. But here's the thing. As faithful as he is, due to his castration, he is not permitted to become a Jew. He is barely permitted into the temple complex to worship. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says, and by the way, I'm about to use some words that are not nice out loud words. If a man's testicles are crushed or his penis is cut off, he may not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23 1 forbids this Ethiopian eunuch from entering the assembly. He can't become what's called a proselyte. He's forbidden. A proselyte is a Gentile, a non-Jew who decides to become a Jew. Part of that process, by the way, is baptism. And he is forbidden because of Deuteronomy 23.1. Deuteronomy 23.1, the primary force of this law in the law of Moses was to stop Israel from castrating its little boys to serve as eunuchs like their their pagan neighbors did. It's actually a pretty pro-life law because they're protecting these little boys uh, from harm. But the secondary kind of effect of that was this eunuch could not enter the assembly. There's a part of the temple that he could step inside of, but not very far. He wouldn't be permitted to become a proselyte. And so this is a lot, but let me just kind of review, because if we don't understand kind of the fullness of what's going on with this guy, the whole story of this part of Acts 8 falls flat. 
In Acts 8, Philip takes this southern road and he meets a foreigner of significant social status. He is a sexual outsider who is forbidden from becoming part of the covenant family despite a track record, despite a sincere faith and desire to honor Yahweh. This, any other Ethiopian could have become a proselyte, could have been baptized, could have become part of the, Israel, the nation of Israel. But this Ethiopian cannot because of this thing that happened to him when he was a kid. And so what happens, what happens when, 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 when Philip meets this strange, sincere, God-seeking man? Let's look at verse 27. Uh, excuse me, 29. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside, but the, walk alongside the carriage. So Philip ran over. Here's the thing. The carriage is like moving. So Philip has to kind of like jog up to it. And in my mind's eye, he's kind of got to like jog next to it while talking to the guy. So obviously the, the application for this sermon tonight and this morning, sorry, I'm going to keep doing that. But the application is when you see a moving car, you want to run up next to it and see if someone inside is reading the Bible. And if they're not, just go to the next one and let's just see, you know, when you're really spiritual, you'll hear which, you know, if it's the brown Ford Flex that you're supposed to run up to. But until then, you just got to trial and error. No. Verse 30, Philip ran over, heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah, and Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. And Philip was like, well, thank you, Lord, because by this point, he's been like next to him and huffing and puffing. So he, here, here's what's interesting. Notice how vital the Holy Spirit's leading is in this passage. We're going to talk about this later. Philip goes on this road because the angel instructs him. The Holy Spirit tells him to run up to this carriage. And as he runs up, he says, how can I read unless, how can I understand this unless someone instructs me? And here's Philip. Philip's discipled. Philip has been devoted to the apostles' teaching with all the believers in Jerusalem. And so verse 32 says, the passage of scripture he, the Ethiopian eunuch, had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Philip finds that this guy is reading from the scroll of Isaiah, which as a side note, is no small task. Isaiah is the longest book in the Hebrew canon, 66 chapters long. This is what we call a codex. There were no codexes of the book of Isaiah. There were only scrolls. And this wouldn't have been like a little scroll. This would have been like a hefty, expensive device so big that as the Ethiopian eunuch is reading it, sitting across from him is probably a serpent holding the scroll, okay? And, and Philip looks over his shoulder to find him reading out of what we call the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It's smack in the middle of this section of the book of Isaiah that is all about, the early church now understands, Jesus. It is all about the Messiah. It's these series of poems called the servant songs. It's the part of Isaiah that says God's plan to shine his light to the nations will be accomplished through a suffering servant who will usher in a new exodus and create a new covenant family that includes every tribe and tongue and nation. It just so happens that that's what this dude is reading. And when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, 
It is not uncommon for the writer to be quoting more than just the specific passage they write down. They're really quoting the whole sense of the section. And so really when Philip walks up to him, Philip begins to explain this whole section of Isaiah that is about this Messiah that was promised, this Messiah that the Ethiopian eunuch has been hoping for, the Messiah that is Jesus of Nazareth. And so in verses 34 and 35, the eunuch says, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. They have a little Bible study. They're as the carriage is going along and they come to a river and what we find is that the eunuch has put his faith in Jesus that through this Bible study as Philip explains that the Messiah you're hoping for the Messiah that God's people is hoping for is Jesus of Nazareth this man who knows the Hebrew scriptures who's worshiped Yahweh as the one true God who's been waiting for the Messiah to come looks at Philip and he says why can't I be baptized he says look Verse 36, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? I like other translations. It says, what is preventing me from being baptized? And it's that word prevent. That's the same word that Jesus says to the disciples, stop preventing the little children from coming to me. He uses this word prevent. The Gentile says, this, this eunuch says, Why, what pre prevents me from be being baptized? He asked that question because he has been prevented his whole life. He, has, he is a Gentile. He is a eunuch. He has been prevented in his entire faith journey to this point. He has wanted to become a proselyte. He has wanted to become a Jew. But his castration has prevented him from entering the covenant family. The Ethiopian then is excited and eager to become part of the new covenant family that Jesus has started in his life and death and resurrection. And Philip does the most remarkable thing. He doesn't answer with words. Verse 38, he ordered the carriage to stop and they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Philip baptizes a Gentile eunuch, a Gentile from the very edges of the earth, a eunuch prevented from being part of the covenant people of God. He baptizes them. In that moment, he we, we see the fulfillment of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5. Just listen to this. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, quote, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The eunuch is a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord's people. Don't, don't say that the Lord will surely separate me from, then check this out. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The man that Philip meets on the road is a foreigner and a eunuch. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5 are about this guy. 
He is doubly excluded from the covenant family until Jesus comes, until Jesus initiates a new covenant, a new covenant anticipated in Isaiah 56 and realized now in this moment. Philip meets a eunuch, and I love this, a dry tree is what Isaiah 56 calls him, and where does Philip meet him? On a dry desert road. And then they find some water. And not only is the eunuch welcomed into the covenant family, he is honored. The Lord says, the Lord says, I will give him a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name. This Ethiopian eunuch, think about this, has spent his entire life to the service of a great name. He has spent his entire life looking at monuments to kings and queens. He has spent an entire life serving a dynasty. And as, as a boy, he was dealt an irreversible wound that has left him as a sexual outsider, as a foreign object, as a strange, even perhaps disgusting curiosity. And now as he goes into the waters, he is given a name. He is given a monument in the house of the Lord forever. And as they come up out of the water the Holy Spirit shows up. Look at verses 39 and 40. This, by the way, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's a lot of echoes in this story with Elijah and Elisha, okay? When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. I mean, Philip's clothes aren't even dry, and he is whisked away in the spirit, just like Elijah was, just like Enoch was, whisked away in the spirit to somewhere else. Philip is commissioned to preach, and so is the eunuch. He makes his journey home, rejoicing as he goes, and to this day, to this day, Ethiopian Christians, African Christians, attribute their spiritual heritage to this guy. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said that this guy was the founder of the church in Africa. Acts 8 is a story of divine engineering. The Holy Spirit, whose leadership is noted three times, leads Philip to a place where he preaches the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is the first Gentile, that is, non-Jewish convert to the way of Jesus. This is absolutely revolutionary. I mean, it has been promised from the very beginning that Gentiles would be included in God's covenant family. It's always been part of the story. Yahweh tells Abraham in Genesis 22, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 52 that the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and the ends of the earth, remember, Ethiopians are at the edge of the earth, the end of the earth. The ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God, Isaiah says. And here, an Ethiopian from the edge of the earth repents and believes in the good news of Jesus. And this moment sets the stage for what comes next. In Acts 10, uh, Cornelius, a Roman officer, a trine and true Gentile, puts his faith in Jesus and becomes part of the covenant family. If the conversion of the Samaritans in Acts 8 would have been distressing, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch would have been confusing. And, and, and the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10 
would have caused people to lose their minds if, if God had not led them on this slow process through Acts 8 through 10. Listen, the difference between Jews and Gentiles that we read about all the way through the New Testament, it's not a difference that's primarily theological. It's a difference of racial bias. Jews were proud not to be Gentiles. Works of the law in Paul's day did not refer to strict adherence to the law of Moses. Works of the law meant doing everything I can to keep myself separate, pure, and holy, unlike the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is divinely engineering a series of steps to prepare Jewish Christians for radical transformation. First, Samaritans become part of the covenant family. Then an Ethiopian eunuch who is a Gentile, but also a God-fearer, and we've got the eunuch X factor, so kind of a part of the process. Then in Acts 9, Saul of Tarsus, who we read at the beginning of Acts 8, is actively persecuting and dragging Christians out of house churches and throwing them in jail. He has an incredible transformation, not a conversion, an incredible transformation on the road to Damascus. And all this gets us ready for the Gentiles to become part of the covenant family in Acts chapter 10. It is a radical inclusion of this person. And before we move on, I think there's an important footnote here, which is that the Ethiopian eunuch is a sexual outsider in his culture. And that is super important for a moment. The Ethiopian eunuch is a sexual outsider, and he has a lot in common in his culture with people who experience same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria in ours. And in our cultural moment, the dominant way of thinking is that casting off biblical authority, that editing the story of Jesus, that's what enables sexual minorities to flourish. But this is not what we see happening in our culture. As we become more progressive on sexuality as a culture, it has not led to an overall increase in flourishing for sexual minorities. The Ethiopian eunuch, a sexual outsider and a minority, finds human flourishing by entering into the story of Jesus as Jesus tells it. And in that sense, in that sense, this Ethiopian eunuch, who is a dry tree, Right? And that's how it feels to people who experience gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction. It feels hopeless, right? Especially when they're raised in churches. Especially when they wake up one day no more responsible for their attractions or feelings than this Ethiopian eunuch is responsible for his own castration. But it's entering into the story that Jesus, of Jesus as Jesus tells, us, tells it that leads to flourishing, Let not the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree, for I will give him a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters within my house and within my walls. It's within God's family. It's within God's house that there is flourishing. I guess I want to invite those listening, especially those of you who know someone experiencing same-sex attraction, living into that, what if flourishing isn't found outside the story of Jesus or by editing the story of Jesus, but by living into the story of Jesus as Jesus tells it? And I want to challenge those who are listening who belong to the family of Jesus, who are married, who have kids, to recognize that the way we uphold an orthodox theology of sexuality is not through preaching, And then it is not through what is functional, shaming and silence. It is by inviting people into our homes, 
It is by inviting people into our families so that they can flourish the way that Isaiah 56 envisions. We can't ask people, we can't ask people who experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria to, in the words of Jesus, become eunuchs for the kingdom if we aren't willing to offer flourishing space around our homes and our tables. If our lives are lived at a pace that are too busy for people that we are saying by obeying scripture, they're going to have to be alone. If there's not space in our homes and our lives for them, we have no business upholding a biblical orthodox sexual ethic. We have no business doing it. We have no business. We have no business. This is going to be important. Sexual licentiousness always follows pandemics. We have no business telling single people that they can't have sex until they get married and then forcing them to live by themselves. Of course they go live with people. Of course they have sex with other before they're married because they're lonely. If we're going to uphold a biblical sexual ethic, it has a lot to do with teaching, but it has way, way, way more to do with offering people homes in our lives and in our tables and at our homes. In the moments that we're closing out tonight, today. Sorry, just going to keep happening. I want us to look at how the Holy Spirit leads. This is a divinely engineered encounter. If you trace back through the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and look for the Holy Spirit's intervention, you'll see his fingerprints all over the story in verse 26 and verse 29 and in verse 39. Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch is divinely engineered. Through the engineering of the Holy Spirit, this Ethiopian eunuch, who is like Philip and Jewish Christians, but unlike them, he is welcomed into the covenant family of Jesus to reach the people that Jesus is calling us to reach in this new mission field means that it is more vital than ever that we listen to the Holy Spirit and submit to his leadership. Listen, this had to be divinely engineered because back in Jerusalem in a little whiteboard brain session, who are the people that we want to reach? Ethiopians would not have appeared on the list. Ethiopian eunuchs would not have appeared on the list. It needed to be divinely engineered. They needed to be led to the person work. By the way, God was already working to expand the covenant family, to reach the people that Jesus is calling us to reach in this new mission field. It is more vital than ever that we listen to and submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about how the Holy Spirit exercises leadership in this passage. First, the Holy Spirit speaks directly to believers. He goes to Philip and he says to Philip, go do this. And so Philip does it. The Holy Spirit exercises leadership in our lives by speaking to us. For some of us, for some of us, that is a clear word of instruction or encouragement from the Holy Spirit. That has happened a few times in my life. One of the most notable was in 2004. I was 14 or 15. I was at a youth conference, and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and tell me, your life is going to be spent in vocational ministry. Was it audible, is what people ask. It did not need to be audible. God spoke from his spirit to my spirit in a way that was louder than audible. Okay? It did not need to be audible for me to hear it. It was louder than audible. So sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks directly to us, a clear word. Sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks to us in something like a nudge, an instinct, an inclination, a thought that crosses your mind that doesn't exactly feel like you. And you get the nudge that you should call someone or ask a question we weren't expecting to ask. We're nudged to give a financial gift that 
we weren't planning on giving. And as we experience nudges and we follow through on them, we grow in our ability to notice the nudges and, and respond to them. So the first way the Holy Spirit speaks to us is directly to us through nudges and through clear words. The second way the Holy Spirit exercises his leadership is through Scripture. The Holy Spirit gets Philip to the Ethiopian just in the nick of time as he's reading this passage. And it is the perfect opportunity to give Philip the opportunity he needs to lead this Ethiopian to Christ. The Holy Spirit leverages Scripture to exercise his Scripture. John Calvin says that the Holy Spirit goes where Scripture goes, Scripture goes where the Holy Spirit goes. They can't be separated. So the Holy Spirit will sometimes remind us of truth. He will bring to mind a passage of Scripture to guide us or to challenge us or to encourage us. It's not uncommon in staff times or in other times when we're praying together for somebody in, in the room to say, as we are praying, this passage of Scripture came to mind. Throughout the book of Acts, we see a lot of other ways that the Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit speaks to believers while they are praying and praising and fasting. The Holy Spirit speaks through leaders gathered together, prayerfully discerning his will. The Holy Spirit speaks through preaching and teaching. The Holy Spirit speaks through people to people, like Priscilla speaking to Apollos. He speaks through dreams. He speaks through visions. He speaks through prophetic words and insights. And what helped the church thrive in unfamiliar territory was reliance on the Holy Spirit, a sensitivity to his presence, and a submissiveness to his leadership. And as you and I step into the mission field of 2021 and beyond, here's what we don't need. We don't need technique, we don't need strategy, and we don't need tactics nearly as much as we need dependence on the Holy Spirit. Every day my inbox is just flooded by consultants and coaches saying in a blog or a book or a podcast or a course or a series that they have the right tactic or the right technique or the right strategy to reach people in this cultural moment. The right tactic for reaching lost people. The right tactic for growing the church. And techniques are good. Strategy is good. Tactics are necessary. I, I spend a great deal of time thinking about those. Our staff thinks a great deal about those. Our leaders think about a those things a great deal. We want to deploy the right technique. We want to deploy the right strategy. We want a tactic to reach people. We really do. We really do. But if we're not cautious, we spend so much time looking for the newest insight and the newest technique that we lose sight of the Spirit of Jesus in our midst. We start chasing after that program or that idea instead of cultivating a listening spirit, a submissiveness to his presence, a sensitivity to his nearness. We lose sight of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us to be our leader. We lose sight of his insight. We lose sight of his strategy. I was just talking with our oversight team last night, and I said, before we make a decision on that, I want to hear a word from the Lord. Not, that seems good. I want us to walk out of the room and say, we heard from God. And this is what we're going to do. And I'm not moving until I hear that. In 1932, a Methodist evangelist named Samuel Chadwick wrote this. In 1932, almost 100 years ago, he says, The Spirit has never abdicated his authority nor relegated his power. Neither Pope nor Parliament, neither conference nor council is supreme in the Church of Christ. The Church that is man-managed instead of God-governed, is doomed to failure. A ministry that is college-trained but not spirit-filled works no miracles. The church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, enterprising, 
but it labors in vain and spends strength for naught. It is possible to excel in mechanics and fail in dynamic. There is a superabundance of machinery. What is wanting is power. To run an organization needs no God. Man can supply the energy, enterprise, and enthusiasm for things human. The real work of a church, the real work of a church, depends on the power of the Spirit. In Acts 8, we see an individual dependent on the Spirit. In the book of Acts, we see a church doing the real work because they're dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we step into new territory together, it's reliance on the Holy Spirit that will cause us to flourish. And so all of this begins with prayer. And so in a second here, we're going to see a prayer on the screen. I want to just invite you to pray that with me, and then Steph will come and lead us in response time. Oh, Holy Spirit, I have my own expectations about what I should and should not do. I now surrender to you my ideas, my limitations, my preferences, and my goals. Fill me, Holy Spirit, with all your supernatural gifts. Empower me to accept and grow in the supernatural life as much as the early disciples did. I want to be useful to you. I want to go where you lead me. Holy Spirit, send me forth gifted and empowered to make a difference, spreading the good news of God's forgiving love. Amen. Steph, would you lead us? Here at Regen, we want to not just be hearers of the word, but we want to be transformed by it, and we want to be doers of the word. We don't want to be like a man who looks at a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like, but we want to be transformed by the word of God um, in our everyday lives. So my invitation for you this morning is, um, I just want to have a couple questions I kind of want us to think about. And the first is, um, how is God getting your attention as it relates to either the other or the sexual outsider? How is God calling you um, and your family um, to minister, to reach out? Who is he getting your attention with? And I guess my other question is, if he's not getting your attention, if there's not someone... um, that you feel called to be praying for, to be reaching out to, to, if not opening your home now uh, for meals and things like that, eventually to be doing that, is um, what's stopping you from praying for that? What's stopping you from uh, really leaning into that? Um, My second question for you this morning is, um, what's keeping you from being spirit-led? What's stopping you from inviting the spirit to do powerful things in your life and in the lives of those around you. As Kyle was preaching, I was thinking, um, it's just so hard to even fathom someone being like snatched up by the Holy Spirit and, and moved to another place physically. Um, and yet the Bible is full of these moments um, where the Spirit moves so powerfully, and not for the sake of a cool story or a cool moment, but for the sake of the gospel for God's word to go forth. Everything about that story still centered back around God's word, around scripture. Um, And so um, what are the boundaries, what are the barriers in your heart or in your mind that are keeping you from inviting the spirit to work powerfully in your own life? Um, And actually I have a third one. (laughs) Um, Do you know scripture? You know, there's this this moment where it says, he said Philip sat under the apostles' teachings. And so when, when the moment came, he was able to talk about Scripture and to explain Scripture. Um, we want to resource you. We want to come alongside you in knowing Scripture. Um, and so between the Dwell app, which if you haven't downloaded that, we'd be happy to help you do that. We have Bible reading plans. Um, 
We want you to be immersed in scripture and to know scripture so that when those moments present themselves, you have an answer for the faith that's within you. Um, so let's just take um, a few mom a moment and just kind of process that. What is it that God is getting your attention with this morning? Is it the idea of um, the other or the sexual outsider? Is it this idea of um, I'm not sure about the Holy Spirit really being active in my life? Or is it this idea of I really want to press into Scripture so that I can uh, know more fully the Word of God and be able to share that with others? Um, so we'll just take a moment. Um, and then uh, I'll pray for us, and then Julia and the team will, will close us out. So. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come this morning, that you would flood our homes and our hearts and our lives with your very presence. I pray for those who feel fear, that they would feel uh, such a sense of welcome for you. I pray for those who feel cynicism or skepticism, that Father, that you would break down those barriers. Um, Father, I pray for those this morning who feel on the outside. I pray that they would know that there is a home within your people, within our spiritual family, that there is a place for them. And Father, I pray that we would be people of your word, that it would be so rooted deeply in us, um, that it would just be the natural overflow of, of our hearts. We ask these things in your name. I just, um, before we head into worship, I just want to invite you, if you need prayer this morning, there'll be a link in the comments. Um, jump on our Zoom, into our Zoom room. We would love to pray with you about any of these things or anything else. If you're dealing with something physical, something spiritual, something emotional, um, it would be just an honor to pray with you this morning. So join us. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. May you hear his voice this week. May you be nudged. May you be spoken to. May scripture leap off the page and into your mind. I love you. Cannot wait to see you next week. I cannot wait to kind of like in the foyer when you come in instead of hugging you. But I love you. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace.